Well, I'm before you tonight with a very full heart. One of my fondest memories of my last visit here was conversations I had with Tom Bunting, who has finished his journey and has done so very well indeed. His progeny lives to bless us. They serve in so many ways and not the easiest places. Places where challenges are great. Let us follow in his path. I must admit to you as I contemplate preaching from the Sermon on the Mount, I cannot blame anybody else because I place that as one of the possibilities for this meeting. But I will tell you that speaking on the Sermon on the Mount five times is like trying to pour Niagara Falls into a teacup. This is a tremendous sermon. And tonight I am occupied with introducing it. Robert Frost, the poet laureate of some years back in this country, once made the observation, I invite you to a one-man revolution. It is the only revolution that is coming. I'm not sure what Frost had in mind, but I will tell you that the Sermon on the Mount is a very radical and revolutionary document. So much so that a lot of effort's been made to tame it down. But it will change everything. And what we have sung tonight in one of our hymns is probably a thematic statement of the sermon. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That is the message. When was this sermon preached? Likely maybe in the spring of the second year of our Lord's public preaching. And the second year is known in students of the life of Christ as the year of popularity. That's indicated in the text in Matthew as the fourth chapter ends. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted in various, with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. He was a popular figure. But I will tell you, and I think you understand this, 
that most of the people who were following him had not one clue about what he was about. They came with their heads full of all kinds of dreams and visions of their own, imagining what the kingdom of heaven would be like. John's heralding of it, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus repeating the same thing, and yet they did not get it. These crowds that were following him during that period of time would melt away soon enough. As John 6, verse 66 says, many of his disciples went back and followed no more with him. He was not the king they wanted, and he still is not the king we want. Poor, I think it's safe to say that Jesus was everything that we ourselves, if we're honest enough with ourselves, fear to be. Not a place to lay your head. He said to one enthusiast who said he would follow him wherever he wanted him to go. Born to a Jewish peasant girl from a nondescript village called Nazareth, about which one man said, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Born in circumstances that were in every way unimpressive, there was no midwife, and the only visitors on the occasion were a few nondescript shepherds from a nearby hill. This was not something that just happened. This is divine planning. And sometimes we make it seem to be greater than it was. He was despised by his own village. Who could not imagine that this man could ever be in any way a king or certainly not the son of God. A carpenter, nobody no social standing, didn't have any education of anything that was noteworthy. He didn't go to the rabbinical schools. He associated freely with some of the most sinful and wicked people. And he died a shameful death, the death of a slave. Now that's the truth. But we don't have to face that today because after 1,900 years of making it sound like this is grand and this is wonderful and people oohing and all over Jesus. But I want to say to you as kindly as I can tonight that if Jesus would come to Murfreesboro today and say the things that he says in this sermon and let it be understood for what it says and means, the people who have been oohing and awing over Jesus would be gone. I hope we're not among them. So, Jesus was an offense to the world in which he came. And his kingdom was a big disappointment too. They were looking for a political kingdom, this nation of Israel. They had served miserably under the heavy hand of Rome for a long time, and they wanted a leader to guide them out of this bond servitude. 
And they wanted a kingdom that had military force behind it. Jesus had none of these things. Or they wanted an economic kingdom. They got very excited about that 5,000 men plus women and children who got fed with five loaves and two fish. Sixth chapter of John. They wanted a kingdom grounded in human power and supported by human wisdom so that it would cause them to be accepted in this world and received. Pilate was dumbfounded to see Jesus, this bedraggled creature, brought before him and accused of awful things by his people. He didn't know what to do with him. He knew what power was. He had dealt with Tiberius. He knew what the Roman legions could do. And the power of that force in the world that captivated multitudes of people, he knew what a king was. And the one standing before him in no sense looked like a king. Are you a king then, he asked. And Jesus said, I am. My kingdom is not of this world. Let that go down deeply in all of us. We live in a world that's roiled with violence. Political confrontations that could be disturbing if we let them be. But I want to stress as we begin this study of thinking about the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus did not come to change political institutions. Jesus did not come to change economic institutions. Jesus did not come to change social institutions. He came to change us. He speaks as the personal God to persons. And it's a revolutionary experience that Jesus would call a birth. We are totally to be changed. I stress as I begin, this is thrown in free. Jesus did not come into the world just so we could be forgiven. It's wonderful to be forgiven all the burden of wrong that we finally come to face. But that's just the beginning. He not only came to forgive us, he came to forgive us so that we would be transformed. And the Sermon on the Mount is about a transformation that is profound and radical, I might say. It seems to me we could make a comparison here. Thinking about that scene in Galilee upon that mountainside with all that multitude gathered together. It is thought that it was above Capernaum somewhere, the Mount of Beatitudes it's called. It was very unimpressive when you think of it in the context of world history. Somebody says, Nazareth was a little place, and so was Galilee. 
But think about the children of Israel at Mount Sinai with a roar of thunder and lightning and fire and tempest and earthquake and the sound of a trumpet. It was terrifying to the people. Hebrews says that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and tremble. That was a mighty force. The people who heard it said, please don't let us hear that voice again, lest we die. You go up and get the word from God and then come down and tell us. This is just a man who's not impressive in his background in a human way, speaking truth. It reminds me a bit of Elijah having run from Jezebel in a cave in Sinai. And suddenly there's a great wind that tears the rocks to pieces, but God was not in the wind. And there was an earthquake, and God was not in the earthquake. And there was fire, and God was not in the fire. And then a still, small voice. This is how God is. And that's Jesus, a teacher, who is speaking truth that is transcendent, that is not just for this time. But for eternity. But God comes in such an unimpressive way so far as we are concerned, given our values, which are all amiss anyway. But this teacher that stood on that mountainside in Galilee is teaching us that things don't matter. He's teaching us that worldly wisdom has no consequence to God. He's teaching that worldly power is of no consequence to God. And so his very presence as he preaches this great sermon is saying to us, look, get your values straight. This is God's choosing in the way he comes into the world. So, let's look at this sermon. It's not always been treated with kindness. George Bernard Shaw said it was an outburst of anarchy and sentimentality. In fact, he said it's an impractical outburst of anarchism and sentimentality. It was used by the social gospel movement who thought they could take the Sermon on the Mount and use it as a pattern for society to follow. Let me stress as we begin this study tonight that you can't keep this sermon unless you are changed. Radically. Absolutely and totally. So this is not anything that you can use as a pattern for human society at large. The social gospel said if we can just change the institutions in which people have to live, we could change the people. And they forget that Adam and Eve were in a paradise of perfection. 
And still, they listened to a serpent that they had never seen before in their lives and denied the God that had created them and put them in a wonderful paradise. So, this sermon is preached because the people didn't understand the kingdom of God. That's the problem. And he knows that if he cannot get them to understand the nature of his heavenly kingdom, that there will be no change in the world. That is, there will be no change in us. And so he came. And preached this great declaration of what we can call the grand charter of the kingdom of God. I compare it somewhat to Moses in receiving the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments was not all, that was not all God's law. What is it that had been calculated 613? But they were central. And so what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you're going to find out what this kingdom is all about here. It will not be exhaustive. There's more to be said and will be given to the apostles of Jesus who go out and tell the rest of the story. His word is the word that they spoke. But nonetheless, when we get through a study of the Sermon on the Mount, we recognize finally the nature of the kingdom that comes out of heaven and is ruled by the king that comes out of heaven. First of all, he says he came preaching the gospel of the kingdom. So this sermon is not Jesus' explanation of the law. This is not an exposition on the law of Moses. This is the gospel of the kingdom. Someone says, but the kingdom hasn't come. It will be there in less than two years. And it will come in such an inauspicious way and quiet way that people will not be impressed with it or take note of it. Indeed, most people will reject it. And most people will reject Jesus. But those who listen and come to the Sermon on the Mount with an attitude that is right will be moved to the core of their being. He saw the multitudes, we are told, in verse 5, verse 1 of chapter 5. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. At first glance, it may appear that he separated his disciples from the multitude. But when you come toward the end of the record of Matthew, in chapter 7, verse 28... And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching. The people generally were astonished at his teaching. They were present and heard what was said. I want to stress something else too. The word disciple in the gospel record does not necessarily mean they are fully committed. 
Otherwise, we wouldn't read John 6.66, which says that many of the disciples went back and followed no more with him because they did not like that sermon on the bread of life. Some of them were just camp followers. They liked the multitudes. They had dreams of revolution that was physical and carnal. And they were thinking that Jesus would fulfill all their aspirations and hopes. But when it became apparent that he was not going to do that, then they followed no more with him. Kingdom of heaven can mean a lot of things. There's a sense in which God's kingdom includes everything and everybody. Willing and unwilling. Everybody is under the rule of God, whether they want to be or not. He rules the nations because he is the creator and has control of all creation. But not everybody will acknowledge his sovereign rule. And that doesn't matter because they're under his rule whether they choose to be or not. And that's something that sometimes gets lost If you're not a Christian, you're still under the rule of the God who rules the world and who created you. But in the case of the kingdom of heaven, that's those who have gladly and willingly accepted the teaching of the king. From the 110th Psalm, his people willingly serve him. That's the kingdom of heaven. And that's something that we have to choose. Tomorrow night we'll get into the Beatitudes. But I want to say a few words about those tonight. You never saw anywhere what would appear to human beings as they see things a better formula for failure than these Beatitudes. The people described in the Beatitudes are losers. They are losers, poor in spirit, spiritually bankrupt, needing mercy. G.K. Chesterton said that the theme of the Beatitudes is nothing succeeds like failure. Well, of course, he was not talking about an actual failure. He's saying that you come to face the fact that you are a failure. This is a barrier for many people. They're not ready to do it. Malcolm Muggridge said that we sometimes forget that Jesus is a prophet of the losers and not the winners. And it's good for us to recognize that there is no special way for some of us to get into the kingdom. Some of us think that it's like it is at the airport. Some people get to go ahead of anybody else, and they get to go through a certain channel. Not in the kingdom of heaven. We all come through the same door. We all come in desperation. So it is good for us to look at these Beatitudes in that way. 
I want to notice with you that in the Beatitudes, there's not one mention of money. Is there? And there's no mention whatsoever of power of a carnal sort. In fact, all the things that are so impressive to us sometimes are unmentioned here. They're not just barely mentioned, they are not mentioned at all. And then we can say about them too, that they are not proverbs. Sometimes we want to pick out the one that seems to apply to us. We say, I like that one about blessed are those that mourn. I've cried a bucket full of tears in my life, and so that will be mine. No. These beatitudes all must apply to kingdom citizens. Every one of them. And they are a seamless garment. If you have one, you're going to have to have all of them. And so we will investigate that more in detail tomorrow. The sermon is, first of all, the character of kingdom citizens. Then it will be the calling of kingdom citizens. Then it will be the righteousness of kingdom citizens. And then it will be the devotion and worship of kingdom citizens. And finally, at last, the challenge to choose. That's the outline of the sermon. All sermons are like that. It's not the intention of preaching to get people to say, well, that's very interesting. All preaching is intended to move, change the direction of lives in radical ways. And when it is just informative without any appeal for change, then it loses its whole purpose. And so it is when we preach without that kind of disposition and spirit. So, the attitudes start with a disposition and our change of disposition toward God and toward ourselves. And that moves us at the change of disposition and attitude toward others. And finally, we get the response of the world to the change that are taking place in those of the kingdom. Persecution. So, those are the things that we will want to discuss tomorrow. Radical stuff. That changes us in every conceivable way. Is this the kingdom that we understand we're in? People today come to the kingdom of God for reasons that are not admirable. And sometimes preaching is intended to draw people for reasons that are not admirable. Are we inviting people to come and join us because there are a lot of fine people here? And you make some good relationships here? Are we inviting people to come to the kingdom of God because we got some good preachers here? 
because we're having fine singing here? Or do we invite them to come to Christ? Who will never, ever fail them. Whose certitude and absolute commitment to them is such that he will never fail you. I will fail you as much as I don't want to. And churches sometimes can fail as much as they do not want to. Sometimes they do. But Jesus will not. And we need to convert people to the preacher here who is the source and the only source of the grand things that God has to give to people in this world. We need to convert them to Christ. And we need to face the fact that if they're going to be converted to Christ, they need to be told Changes will have to be made. Repentance has to be preached. And sometimes I fear that our invitations sort of leave that part out. Jesus is warning people who are following him in great multitudes at this time. He is warning them, you need to understand what you're being called to if you become a part of the kingdom of God. He frequently gave cautionary warnings to enthusiastic people who came saying, I'll follow you wherever you go. And he'd say, stop and think. If any man would come after me, he says in the 16th chapter of Matthew, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. I'm not sure we say that to people who come to be baptized into Jesus. Why not? If we really believe that what God has done for us in His Son, Jesus Christ, is worth every possible conceivable sacrifice that we could make. That there is such worth in God's King and God's Kingdom that there is nothing that we should hesitate to give up in order to obtain that and to be a part of it. So... I guess I wanted to say that when people come to be baptized into Christ, they need to understand what they're getting into. We're not trying to scare people away. God will never leave you nor forsake you, but we have got to face the reality that this change is radical. It is extensive. It covers the totality of one's life. And when you come to be baptized, you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that from now on, whatever he says, that's the way it's going to be. However challenging, however difficult, however strongly we might resist it at times, it is something that must be done if we're going to be what God wants us to be and be able to live with him in heaven. There is mercy with the Lord, clearly or none of us would possibly make it. I think I've said what I wanted to say. To get us ready to look at this tremendous sermon, 
Greatest sermon ever preached, people say. But the truth of the matter is, in large measure, it is the most well-known sermon of Jesus, the least understood and the least practiced. We're going to get to love your neighbor, and we're going to get to love your enemy. And we'll come at last to be exposed to the depth of righteousness which is being required. And we'll come at last to understand the genuineness of worship from within, from the heart, in the sermon. I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do when I started out this series on the Sermon on the Mount. But I hope you're following this great truth that Jesus is saying in this sermon, stop and think. If you want to be my disciple, this is what will be expected of you. You don't just join a religious club and pay your dues and show up often enough that you don't get kicked out. This involves a total and absolute commitment. Nothing held back. Nothing kept back. Everything turned over to Jesus. I often tell the story of a young man who was in love with a certain young lady. And he made arrangements for a very romantic setting in which he was going to ask her to marry him. And so he did, as he had planned. And he said, I've come to love you with all my heart, and I just cannot imagine life without you, and I'm wondering if you would be willing to become my wife, to which she replied, that's interesting. No. <laughs> if somebody says, I love you, let me tell you what they hope to hear. And I love you too. We have been loved immeasurably by God. He thought that we were so valuable to him that our life was more important to him than the life of his son. We're not going to have any discussion in the Sermon on the Mount about the atoning sacrifice because Jesus doesn't get to that until late in the second year, early in the third, indeed. He does not tell them till the third year of his public preaching that he's going to Jerusalem to die. But that's where it is. What kind of response should we make to that? When God has turned heaven upside down and poured it out upon us and giving his own son in this Tragic, 
awful death because he loved us so much. What kind of response should we make to that? That's what this sermon is raising. Should we be casual about it? Should we give a lot to it? Should it become important to us? Or have, have we not the responsibility to respond as Paul does in the 12th chapter of Romans? I beseech you therefore by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, whole and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There are going to be some tough things in this sermon. But I hope that when we get to them, we will just say, small price to pay of what God has done for me. I don't know this audience. You may all be devout Christians, or there may be some who are not. And we'd like to say to you, you will regret many things in your life. But you will never regret having said to Jesus, I give you everything. And I trust you absolutely. Nobody loves you like he loves you. And nobody has the power to achieve what he can achieve in your life. No one. And if you don't trust him, I'm asking you tonight, who will you trust with your life? Only he who said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The hymn asked a question. Why not tonight? This could be a turning point that could make a difference not just in this world, but forever. And you can do it. And God wants you to do it. And not only does he want you to do it, he wants you to succeed in it. He wants you to succeed. He wants you to become what he has made plans for you to be. He is on your side. And the fullness of heaven's power and wisdom and grace is moving it. So we invite you tonight, if you never confess Jesus as Lord, never turned your life over to him, and buried that old man in the fluid grave, that by the cleansing blood of Jesus and the grace of God, you could be raised to walk in newness of life. While we stand together and sing.